the AWS for Software Companies podcast, Episode 11, Software Data Architectures Roundtable, featuring Deepak Takral of McAfee and Bob Page of Telium. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome back to the AWS for Software Companies podcast, where we speak to software leaders around the world about their journeys to the cloud, overcoming obstacles, and the role that Amazon Web Services play in their success. Today, we have two software leaders sharing best practices around software data architectures, Deepak Takrell of McAfee and Bob Page of Telium in a roundtable hosted by Denise Zelt of Amazon Web Services. My name is Denise. I'm a partner development specialist focusing on data and our ISVs. So we're going to talk about the modernizing software data architectures today. And I've got a couple people on my panel to, to help us. So I'm going to have them introduce themselves. Deepak? So hello, everyone. Uh, my name is Deepak Takral, and I run uh, e-commerce at McAfee. And that includes our product and engineering uh, teams. And what we focus on is, you know, think about any kind of an e-commerce business. It's 100% direct to consumers worldwide. So we manage our website. We merchandise our products shopping cart and checkout, and then a global payment stack, as well as our marketing communication. So you think about our messaging and communication. And I'm going to be speaking about a lot of that today in terms of how we've evolved from a monolith to a much more of a microservices-based uh, uh, application stack, as well as you know we've evolved our database architecture to help us kind of scale. Uh, hi, I'm Bob Page. I run product at a company called Telium. And I'll tell you about Telium in just a minute, but I'll tell you about Bob Page first. Before I had gray hair, uh, back in the dark ages, um, I uh, actually started a, a company that we actually today would call Web Analytics. Uh, and, uh, and so have been doing data for close to 30 years. Uh, and um, uh, went on from that, and uh, I ran um, analytics products for uh, Yahoo and then ran analytics the entire infrastructure for eBay for a number of years uh, before jumping back into the world of selling uh, the software. Uh, and so um, spent some time at Hortonworks on Hadoop. Um, so suffice to say, um, I know too much about data. Um, and, uh, and now at Telium, uh, where I run product, Telium is, um, think of it as kind of, oh my, my head of marketing is going to kill me for saying this. Uh, think of Telium as uh, as the mechanism by which uh, all of the different disparate systems, your data systems from all over the place, come in, where you can stitch them together to create a unified, sort of cohesive view of your customer, um, and then activate those customers and audiences downstream for things like email activation or whatever um, personalization you might need or want. Uh, so Telium is is almost a middleware, if you will, uh, and uh, very large sort of enterprise customers. Thank you. Thank you both. We're going to dig in a little bit deeper, especially on the, the data. <laughs> so as, we, as you know, that increasing amounts of data um, that you're collecting on your customers, on product usage, on service infrastructure, there's a continuous evaluation of that data. And, and to ensure that we can bring that data together, we have to help govern, to do regulatory needs, develop insights, those predictions that we're looking for. Um, that helps us 
differentiate uh, differentiate ourselves from the co uh, the competition. So what I'd like to do is dig in a little bit more about uh, data architecture. And um, so Bob, um, Delium has customers. You you do customer data, customer in, and how do you help your customers with their end users and really understanding and how does that bring value to their businesses? Well, you asked it from a data architecture standpoint. So um, if you think in a in a sort of an ecosystem-like world. Um, there, there are many touch points that customers have now, whether it be you know a, a web app or or um, uh, an offline experience I might have at a, at a point of sale terminal or whatever it might be. All those different ways in which a customer will interact with, let's just say a brand, a company could be you know whatever. Um, they need all that data integration. So um, you have streaming, you have real time, uh, you have uh, batch, you have uh, API connections. You have, you have file uploads, you have all these different ways, uh, and they, they all have to coexist simultaneously. Um, so making it easy to ingest all that at whatever speeds or whatever volumes or whatever schedules that someone might need, um, and then bring it all together, uh, again, sort of in a streaming way, is a big challenge, first of all. And then there's the how do you, how do you create kind of a single identifier for a customer? How do you do... The matching, whether it might be this customer, uh, I definitively do definitively know who it is, or, or I think I might know who it is based on, say, uh, uh, I have one record that says Denise, but the other says D, but they're the same shipping address, so they they might be the same person. Uh, and so, how do you then uh, combine them in a probabilistic way as opposed to a deterministic way? Does that make sense? Uh, and and what are the policies around that? And, and much of that work has to be done not in real time, but it do, it's done in batch because a lot of the information is available only in a batch way. Um, not only that, it's expensive to do sort of in real time. But there are, beyond that, there are, there are governance, there is privacy, there is GDPR, there's all these different ways in which you want to think about the, the way that you want to do this data, the way you want to bring the data together. And, 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 of course, doing it in real time. Why in real time? Real time because that's where the customer is. If the customer is at the point of sale and you want to offer them some kind of loyalty reward right there, you can't do it 15 minutes later when they've left, right, when they walked out the door. Or if they're at the website, same kind of thing for a personalization. So you need to do it, you need to do it in real time. Well, it sounds like you have to really have a matrix of priorities. So how do you set up your priorities for data architecture and your roadmap? I, I, I like to say that, that all our investments are a portfolio. And just like any portfolio of investments, not all of them are going to be home runs. Uh, we hope that some will. So some are speculative bets. So those hit the roadmap. In, these are things that are quality of life improvements that customers want. But then there are, well, where's the market going? What are our partners at AWS telling us they're seeing, for example, in the, in the marketing world, in the ad tech world, in the services business, right? These kinds of things that can feed into that. Um, what are our resellers telling us, uh, et cetera? Uh, and then, you know, what do we think are some of the big bets? Do we need to go figure out um, NFTs and marketing with NFTs and tracking all that. Is that something that we need to go spend time on? Uh, and, but largely when, when 
when our partners or other um, vendors will come to us and say, we really like, we really think you should work on this. Uh, my question is, well, what, which customer wants it? So that's really how we say where the roadmap's gonna go is what do customers need and which of the pain points are the ones they'll pay us the most to solve. So Bob, has there been any lessons that you've learned along this path? Um, there's a lot of scars, uh, lessons. Yeah, I mean, I think whatever you, th I mean, it's easy to be a victim of, of your own success, I guess. Um, you get into a niche and you say, we're gonna be the best in the world at a thing. But in the life cycle of, uh, of an application or even of a company, um, I think, when you get successful at one thing, you think this is our groove, we've hit it, we're doing really well. Um, then a meteor comes from left field, right? And then, and then you've got to pivot. Or a customer who you really respect because they're on the cutting edge starts breaking your product in ways that you think is ridiculous. But then you realize, first of all, they're a, a big customer, so you've got to pay attention. But secondly, they're probably 18 to 24 months ahead of the rest of the market. So you got to go help them achieve that. And that's the, your unfair advantage. That's a really good point. <clears throat> well, thank you for that. Deepak, can you share um, how McAfee manages high performance and explosion of the explosion of data that's collected? And you, how do you manage that with intelligence? Sure, Denise. So maybe give a small story of how we are using, like having to deal with a large amount of data and how we made some choices deliberately about what database technology to use. So at McAfee, our mission is that how do we help people, how do we help all consumers protect them wherever they are online, right? Whether they're on a desktop or mobile, there's all kinds of cybersecurity threats, whether it's malware on their computers or identity protection or threat, you know, or breach, we have to help them where they are. And um, I'll go back to March 2020. As COVID hit, a lot of started things started to happen where we started to see a significant increase in the number of desktops that were being lit up, right? More activations happening as more people were buying computers, switching stuff to online, Zoom classes happening, schools, et cetera. And our business is primarily where we pre-ship our McAfee software into all the world's top PC manufacturers. And so we started to see a lot of traffic coming in. And we have a messaging stack that we had set up that deals with like 500 million plus calls per day, right? And we have to determine as the message comes in, what's the right message to give to this user globally with the right relevant right segmentation. And we were experiencing a lot of outages, you know? In, 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 the, in a sense, it's really bad because we were needing to have apologize to our stakeholders, to our customers. But then sometimes it's a good problem. And so when we looked at it and we were like, well, you know, we had a SQL Server stack, but it was on-prem, it was built on a monolith, and now all this years of tech debt was coming to bite us. And so we made a conscious decision and said, look, let's move to a cloud-native solution, let's choose the right database architecture that'll help us scale horizontally and into the future. And so we made a deliberate choice to move towards DynamoDB, and what we did was like, as the data was exploding, right, we said, okay, can we get a database that's highly available, highly performant, low single-digit millisecond response times? And we found that with, with DynamoDB. So we ended up going with um, 
taking all the data that was coming in, you know, it was product telemetry, subscription data about the user, like is it a breach event in real time, et cetera, capturing all of these events um, into DynamoDB and then using that to segment the customer, deliver the right message. So we went from a place where, you know, as these users were coming online, we were having all these outages, we went to a place where we were like a 99.9, barely making that, to like four nines, so 99.9%. And that really helped us improve our reliability. And that kind of unlocked the foundation for the team to really say, okay, foundation secure, databases are secure, we're getting all this explosion of data, but we know how to manage in a much more structured, reliable way. Now let's to focus more on feature dri driving more features, driving more business value. And that to me was one of the most significant transformations we made that has really helped us out in the long run. So thank you both. Um, just listening to the, the explosion of data and really pushing the envelope and also you know, customers using the, the application the way it wasn't supposed to be used, but pushing you as well as far as the company. Can, can anybody else talk about their experiences in this area? <coughs> So, uh, so Bob, uh, I'm probably in the same space as you. We are. Uh, uh, I'm from Juvox. My name is Shankar. I, we do ad personalization. So, literally, when you see an ad, oh, at the last, so we we basically get seven milliseconds to actually personalize the ad. So, Google wins the bid, sends the tag to us. We actually personalize the ad. Push it, push it onto the publisher site in seven milliseconds. That's the, that's if, in effect what the platform does, right? Uh, so we had this challenge uh, about three, four, three years ago, where uh, suddenly our ad ad volumes uh, quadrupled within within about two months. So we had written a certain stack with uh, Java-based um, microservices, but just that wouldn't scale. Uh, which, uh, irrespective of number of servers, we actually auto-scale on on uh, Amazon just won't scale fast enough. So we had to pretty much rewrite that entire layer again. Um, and uh, we switched to a uh, switched to a Kafka-based uh, event processing stack combined with uh, a whole bunch of producers and consumers on Kafka, combined it with a sparse streaming solution. And uh, that's how we actually were able to scale. And right now we are processing about about 10 times the volume we were processing three years ago. And um, we, are, we are able to scale up. Hi, I'm Steven at Datastacks. Uh, we build a database as a service off of open source Cassandra and uh, Pulsar streaming. And you know, we saw customers moving data to perform AI and analytics. And so we eventually took the cue to acquire an AI company called Cascada, um, which allows us to do real-time AI off of time series data. And that's something that you know we probably wouldn't have seen if there weren't so many customers kind of looking for that, but not knowing they were looking for that. Thank you. I love hearing these stories. I you know it really it really does illustrate the the need to have that data architecture and uh, and go through that and that roadmap. We've got another topic around data. We're going to talk about uh, monolithic data versus microservices. And I think this is near and dear to my heart. I really, I really like to dig into this um, because we find this very often in in software companies, where there's monolithic uh, applications that challenge with uh, coupled scaling, access control, lack of observability, uh, blast radius, 
DevOps, there's just a number of different components into this that just kind of hit you at all all angles. Um, so modern applications have shifted to this microservices ar architecture. Deepak, can, I know McAfee has went through this recently, and I've, I've loved to hear more about the steps you took to get there and, and where you're at today with that. Sure. Thank you, Denise. One thing I've learned is, as, a, as engineering leaders, we have to always figure out how do we anchor solutions to concrete business problems? Because that helps. If I just show up and I say I'm going to go and transform into microservice architecture, that's a good story. But one of the things we realized was that we wanted to go and do a lot more cross-sell and upsell. And what was getting in the way is that anytime we wanted to upsell to current customers or cross-sell a different thing, the amount of change it took to those core, core objects was weeks and months. So then we said, okay, we really need to move from this functional you know, monolith and central DB to a true microservices-based architecture. But we kind of were very deliberate about breaking it down into chunks and saying, first, can I take those core kind of entities and create core microservices out of it, right? And part of that was moving from you know, on-prem data centers, uh, SQL servers to more like, in this case, we decided to go with Postgres and change the language to like Node.js and built into what I would call as principles as three layers. One is a functional layer, which has the core functionality in it. The second one was orchestration layer, which had the core business logic, as well as orchestration of how these applications communicate with each other. And the third was the data layer, where all the data operations was going on, right? And so then, based on those principles, we built for like scale, as well as expansion, right? And so how could we like look at clusters? And we went in and heavily invested in building out EKS clusters as well as building a much more observability stack, right? So we made investments in how we invested in uh, Grafana to visualize all the things. And then we used CloudWatch for a lot of application logging and monitoring, as well as Loki and Trace for like all the tracing. So a lot of investments were made into the foundations. Thank you. <clears throat> Back in the day, uh long time ago, I was an RPG programmer, and I would uh, send my, my search out and go get to the vending machine to get my Diet Coke and Twinkie and come back, and I was so excited that something came back. So I'm so happy to be in an environment where we can talk about microservices rather than that type of an environment that I was in. So Bob, what are your thoughts about adopting microservices and, and with your product, and, and how has that worked for you? Um, well, let me say we have um, we have a monolith in in one place, and we have a bunch of microservices in another place, and they talk to each other. You may have guessed by by my my comment about how we plan a roadmap that that I'm very practical, uh, I'm pragmatic about it, and I don't want to just pull down all the monoliths because it's a bad word. Uh, I want to do it because it makes business sense to do it, and in some cases, some of what we're doing um, is worth putting on the tech debt uh, roadmap, but not like reprioritizing over some of the other stuff that we want to do. So I'd say we're leaning into it by um, learning from what we've already done with some of the other microservices. Anything new that's developed from scratch is all microservices based. A number of things that were um, part of the monolith have been pulled out uh, and are now well-behaved citizens, shall we say. Um, and but it, it's painful, right? It's painful to do it. I'm just going to you know 
just going to, to, to Kafka, for example, um, is sometimes, and we did it from Rabbit. And uh, man, what a pain in the butt that was. It took us almost a year to do it um, because of all, because, you know, you're flying the plane and, and you still have to change the engines, right? So um, I, some of the things that you let off with, like observability, I think observability might be easier in a monolith, quite honestly. That's one of the trade-offs you're thinking. If you go to mic microservices, you're you're losing some of that observability. No, no, no. Just that it gets it, as you have more services, there's more complexity, right? And and then you start talking about discoverability of the services, and and then you're talking about you know event event-based and architectures, um, you know, to make sure that that you've got you know PubSub or whatever it might be. And I'm not. I'm not saying one over another is bad in any way, shape, or form. It's all about what you need. I will say that um, um, that we have suffered due to the monolith, quite honestly, and 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 we have it's very high on our our list of things to do is to take the elements that are still problematic and move them. Based and you've got we've got one team who's going ha 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 right, and another team saying come on help us right because we we need to get there. Really good point, Bob. Funny story since you kind of reminded me. So we, we were moving from this monolith to microservices. And uh, all these microservices built in, chief architects really proud. We built so many different observability. But when we hit place order, suddenly the load time, the amount of time it's taking, went up. You know why? Because now you have 24 microservices all doing their little round trips. And that just adds up. Sure, you built an observability into each and every one of those. The place order is still taking a lot longer than it was with the monolith. And so we had to then fine tune each of those points. So, you know, I think just going to a microservices architecture is not the end goal. It's our improving observability. You can do it in both, but you got to look at what's the business cost of that and make sure you're pragmatic and balancing both sides as you, as you do that. But, I mean, without a doubt, we, we, I think we all have horror stories. I'd love to hear some of them. But um, so I'll give you one. We we so we're globally distributed. We've got I think I think eight AWS data centers right now, um, and around the world. And we had uh, somebody had written some code to do something. Um, so we don't do last mile delivery. I just want to make sure that that's clear. We don't serve the ad, right? But but we'll say, hey, can you go serve the ad? Right? Here's the ad. Here's the audience. Whatever. Um, and um, and so these connectors that we had were, were you know would, would be firing, and sometimes there would be errors, uh, and so we'd want to make sure that we understood those so we could go rectify them, work with the vendor if it was slow or whatever. So we'd be logging them somewhere. Well, it turns out that the person who originally wrote the sort of architecture code for the connectors was logging it into one place globally, and and it was it was a sample. It wasn't the full stream, but we we had some wonky thing happen in Sydney, and then uh, suddenly alarm bells were ringing in, in in U.S. East, and we're like, what, what, what? Uh, and it's because we had all this trans-Pacific traffic that was flowing over there, and it was screwing up our our database instance, our Mongo instance in in U.S. East. So so those kinds of things are like, okay, this was okay when we were small, right? But when you get big. All this stuff starts to come home to roost. <laughs> I love the stories. Any other trade-offs that you can think of in making this change from monolithic to microservices? Since I have the mic, yeah, there aren't enough people that understand microservices. I would say that's a big problem. 
as people think, oh, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a wonderful thing. Let's go do that because I, my CEO read about it on the plane, right? So, you know, so, so I mean, seriously, that's a problem. Do you have any trade-offs that you're looking at? I think similar to what Bob said, but it was like uh, about training, right? I think you've got a team of engineers who are highly trained and know how to make changes to that monolith and they can ch make changes fast. Now you have to get them to a new mindset of how to learn all these different services, different languages we went from, um, .NET, SQL Server-based applications to more like Node.js, cloud-native, built on AWS. So there was definitely a learning curve. But I would say overall it turned out to be much more beneficial to us, especially in terms of the scale and reliability that we see today versus where we were before. None of that RPG in the corner or anything? No, no not yet. <laughs> <laughs> I would love to hear your stories. Anybody? I'd, with microservices or the challenges, or if you're looking to go to microservices for monolithic, we'd love to hear from you and have conversation. Sure. Uh, so my name is Yuan. I'm with Stripe. And before Stripe, I was at Uber. And uh, I've seen sort of the monoliths to Microsoft, microservices migration in both places. and. One of the things that I think is can easily be a trap is like people become too rigorous about being micro in terms of microservices. And at Uber, I think you know they eventually had you know this is anecdote uh, sort of uh, narrative, but basically they have more services than engineers uh, in terms of uh, so. Um, the I I suspect that probably it's a misnomer to call it microservices. Like you know, I prefer to call it service-oriented architecture. And you don't have to have like super super small microservices. You you still want to have uh, you know probably a team owns that one service, but it's still sort of a fat service that do does a bunch of things. It doesn't do all the things your company does, but it still does quite a few things and so that you can amortize the you know observability or on call or whatever right like across a large number of people instead of uh, you know doing it on the per person or per service level I, I thought you made a great point there especially about service oriented architecture versus microservices so something similar where uh, we have a global payment stack and for us as a subscription business, the bread and butter of how we make money is through auto renewals as we continue to provide recurring services to our customers. And for the payment stack, made a conscious choice to prioritize the payment. It was already set up as a service-oriented architecture. But we had a choice between, do we spend more time in like building better ML models that will help predict if you charge the customers at this time of the day and day of the week, actually going to get a better authorization rate from the banks compared to like just charging them at 3 p.m. Pacific. So we could either go and organize in those kind of activities or using the SOA, or go and put everything on the microservices-based architecture. In this case, we made a deliberate decision to go with the former and actually invest more in building those ML models. And what we are starting to see is some really interesting benefits, because again, the engineers knew exactly the service-oriented architecture, everything is built. The data scientists could focus a lot more on building the ML models, outputting it out, use it there, right, and run experiments. And only in the second half of the year will we actually take the time, once we've seen the business benefits, of going into that microservices architecture for the payment stack. On the card and other areas, we've already moved. 
Hi, my name is Amit. I, I run the products at a company called Dhruva, uh, which is built on top of AWS. So one of the things I, I would say that uh, uh, we were the pioneers built on top of AWS in providing SaaS-based data protection. And uh, we started with microservices, right? So we haven't gone through the process of from monolithic to microservices based architecture. Uh, we were built right, you know, with the microservices and scale uh, in mind. Uh, my, since I'm running products, I may not be the best person to talk about uh, architecture and tech that is being used. But one of the things that I've observed uh, also is that uh, being, uh, you know, running uh, and and having a microservices-based architecture is not the end goal. Uh, what we ha I have seen is we have to also continuously evolve and adapt to what AWS is coming up with the market in terms of new services, new technologies, and so on. So. Uh, uh, we are one of the largest users of DynamoDB, for example, for AWS uh, and also S3. But over a period of time, they have made so much improvements in those services also, right? S3, for example, they have come up with new class of services for S3. So we also have to evolve, and that's what we have done in past 10 years, to consume the new services that they have come up and use uh, it to our benefit uh, and pass on those benefits to our customers as well. So I just have a question. So I just want to listen to a story uh, where uh, where how you decide on what factors you initiate this modernization, whether it's business driven, and how and if there is a strategy on how frequently you reevaluate your architecture. Uh, uh, so I just want to hear strategy of different leaders on how they want to plan this. So for us, a couple of other factors that go in. One is, I think it's it's an and of a couple of factors. One is. For example, just like business revenue, right? So for, for us as e-commerce, uptime is money. And so when we had an outage one time and it lasted a couple of hours, like site down, cart down, we added up the cost, right? For us, investing in building that microservices architecture with better observability, better uptime, just made a lot of clean financial sense from our revenue and bookings. But then when we look at like the, the case for DynamoDB, Moving out of SQL Server into a more key value-based, uh, you know, attributes, we reduced the footprint of that. We were able to see cost savings of about a million dollars over a year, right? We then moved to EKS clusters and that containerization and further led to cost savings that were very concrete. Third, moving out of paying the licenses for SQL Server also helped us. So when we see over time each of the three like phases that we did. It, that amounted to like concrete uh, cost savings for us that was like justified in the decisions we made. Thank you. Any last thoughts? I, I'm struck by the the comment about about Dynamo. We we moving from SQL Server to Dynamo. I don't know if this is universally true, but it's um, it's tempting to want to describe a certain thing as a hammer and then everything else as a nail. And Dynamo for us was that hammer where we were trying to hit everything with it, um, including things that it wasn't really, shouldn't have been used for. Um, and so we're kind of um, unwinding some of that right now, uh, where we see, for example, like um, timescale is a better use of, uh, a better a better m method for some of the things we want to do. Uh, so yeah. it's um, back to the back to the data architecture, right? Yes. Um, the, the, right, the right database at the right time. The um, uh, Jeff Carter had a um, 
session at um, AWS reInvent um, last November, where he had up on stage uh, Disney Streaming and Intuit, where, and they both gave um, case studies about how they use different versions of different uh, database technologies for different reasons. Um, I found it incredibly compelling. Just loved loved watching it. I recommend if you uh, if you have the chance to check it out. Now I I echo what Bob said. Like you know there are cases where RDBMS makes sense, and we stuck with like Aurora RDB or where like the metadata needed better differential integrity. In some cases, makes sense. To, in some cases, it makes sense to go with Postgres or dare I say it, some cases it makes sense to stick with SQL Server. So we've done all, we have all of them, and it is really a portfolio approach. Do what's best for your business. Don't just follow something because it looks cool out there on the books. Well, I want to thank you both for being here. I want to thank everybody in the audience for your participation. Thanks again for listening to the AWS for Software Companies podcast. For more conversations with global software leaders, subscribe to this podcast in your podcast app of choice. And please feel free to share these episodes on LinkedIn or other social media. Thanks again for listening.